you're listening to the Living with the Hare Krishnas podcast. Welcome to the introductory episode. In making this podcast, I reached out to many former members and friends, and none of them wanted to speak to me with their names attached. I'm very sympathetic to that attitude because ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, are the main group within the Hare Krishna movement, and they are very litigious. So I'm being careful not to say anything defamatory. Unless I refer specifically to ISKCON, you can assume I'm talking about one of the other groups. For this reason, I'm also going to remain anonymous. I decided to make this podcast for a few different reasons. I feel the public's perception of the Hare Krishnas is very incomplete. If they've heard of them at all, many people think that they're a benign group that wear colourful clothing, shave their heads, and hand out books in the street, and host free feasts on the weekend. Other than that, a lot of people don't give it much thought. I thought that as someone who was raised in the community from ages 5 to 13, I'm in a unique position to shed some light on the inner workings of the group, and some of the more dangerous mechanisms at play, as well as look back at my childhood experiences with the hindsight of 13 years out of the group now, and to try and understand the varied impacts, both good and bad, that the experiences have had on me and on other members as well. This isn't meant to be a hit piece. Um, I want to draw attention to the problems within the group so that they can be addressed. I think that every person should have the right to engage with spirituality on their terms and to be safe while they do so. I became involved with the group because of my parents. From ages 0 to 4, they were white hippie conspiracy theory types. Shortly after conceiving me, they got married in a witchy ceremony in the rainforest in northern Queensland in Australia. I was a home birth and my mother almost named me Moonfire. Her reasoning was that the moon was out while I was being born, and there was a fire in the living room. Original, it seems like she thought really hard on that one. Luckily, my father managed to talk her out of that idea, but unfortunately for me, his sister was a similarly hippie spiritualist who named me after a fairy. My legal name is not much better than Moonfire, if I'm honest. I can't say what it is, but imagine a name like Flariella or Dranabella. We all moved down to New South Wales in the late 90s, and they rented a lakeside shack in the middle of the forest, around 30 minutes drive from a small country town. Dad was a homeopath, and they worked together on a business, which was really a health supplement pyramid scheme. I think their income was supplemented by government benefits. In hindsight, we were quite broke, but I didn't go without things I needed, even if they were delivered in unusual ways. The bath, shower, and toilet were all outside, which meant on one hand you could have a bath surrounded by beautiful rainforests, but on the other hand, hopping along stepping stones to the compost toilet in the middle of winter wasn't very fun. I think that I might have idealized this time in contrast to what came afterwards, but my memory is that I was a pretty happy kid, with two parents who at least didn't hate each other. In my memories, 
The day could look like waking up to my dad swimming in the lake while my mother played her harp on the veranda with the kettle boiling in the background. Birds were always chirping, and if you were really still and quiet, you might see the platypus swimming in the lake. Or if I was extra quiet, maybe an actual fairy. I would take my mum for walks into the forest, explaining how the trees were actually a magical world and that certain areas had special names. Nights could be spent around the fire pit in the backyard making toast, with my parents chatting away to friends, or inside on couches around the potbelly stove. I was obsessed with ladybirds, and one night Dad stayed up for hours into the night, drawing them for me in the notebook so I would get to see them all in the morning. It turns out the town they moved near was colloquially known as the Hare Krishna capital of Australia. The dancing, singing temple members they'd see when they headed into town to get supplies soon drew my parents' interest. They were befriended by some members who introduced them to the temple, which was a house that the members had pulled money together to rent. At the time, it just seemed like we were meeting new people and having a place to go on the weekends. In hindsight, though, it happened really quickly. My mother and father were both initiated by an elderly Indian man we called Gurudev the first time he visited from India, with them changing their names and promising to dedicate their lives to his service. I was five years old the next time Gurudev came to visit. He was staying with a friend of my mother's and all the other devotees were jealous of her and the amount of time she got to spend with him. He was a kind of spiritual celebrity. He and his entourage had people snapping photos, offering gifts and money, trying to touch him or even gather the dust from beneath his feet. His leftovers were a hot commodity. The owner of the house would sometimes bring his leftover plate and give an eager crowd a few grains of rice each. Once there was a piece of ginger that he had chewed and everyone went crazy for that trying to get a piece of it because it had his saliva on it. This crowd followed him everywhere he went, and everyone wanted to receive his blessings. I was very small for my age, and my mother dressed me in an admittedly adorable miniature outfit, put clay markings between my eyebrows and colourful dots on my face, so I looked like a perfect little Hare Krishna girl. She would push me to the front so I could touch his feet, a way to gain his blessings, and then, conveniently, she'd get to have a moment with the guru. Afterwards, we'd be so excited, and she'd tell me how well I did. Then one day, after hearing about all the other adults being initiated, I decided I wanted to as well. I didn't really know what it meant, but I wanted to be included. My parents jumped on the idea, and soon I was in a room with Gurudev, my mother, and a few other adults who were being initiated at the same time. We repeated some mantras after him, he blessed us, and I was given a new Hare Krishna name. Then we left, and I didn't think anything more of it. From then on, my parents insisted everyone call me by my new Hare Krishna name. But I'd soon learned that being initiated involved a lot more than just that. Shortly after, in 2002, in September, 
My mother noted she got cheap tickets because it was the anniversary of the Twin Towers tragedy. She withdrew me from school for three months to go and live in India. I ended up going five times between the ages of five and 13. Like every other time, I was intentionally not vaccinated and I got really, really sick. This was indicative of a pattern in which adults prioritized their personal spiritual development over the well-being of their children. In the case of my mother, the ego boost she got from being seen as a good Hare Krishna was all too alluring. Thank you for listening. Join me in the next episode where I introduce the man who founded the group in the late 1960s and look into the group's dubious and contested origins.